in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, life-giving, operating scalpel of His Word. Father, help me be faithful to the words of these two verses so that we will, as we have been, continue to worship You in obedience of faith to Your holy commands and promises and every jot and tittle of Holy Scripture. We are a desperately needy people for your work. So glorify your name in these next 40 or 50 minutes. Glorify your Son in your people. I ask. Amen. Amen. We, we, we live right now in a time within Christianity where biblical expository preaching is rare. And thus the power of God in His Word to transform people's lives through the pulpit is diminished. And thus, to that extent, the glory of God in the world and in the church is not seen as clearly as it ought to be. Many church leaders over the last numbers of decades are saying that because of TV, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, people just cannot handle a 35-minute sermon that might have an argument or two in it. They can't do it because they're not used to it and it demands too much from them to think and follow a stream of reasoning. So instead, I was taught this in Bible college, I was taught it in seminary, there are books on it, there are conferences on it, that pastors, elders, church leaders, you need to he heed the advice to find out what people in the neighborhood and in the culture 
want or what they would be comfortable with if they came into your church doors on Sunday morning and then give that to them. And of, of, yes, of course, you will have to cloak it with we're Christians, so Jesus' stuff. And so because of that, over decades, many have advocated 15-minute or 20-minute sermons, or actually probably you shouldn't even call it a sermon, or preaching, you know, 20-minute talks that are built around the felt needs of people. In other words, things should be kept light, not, not heavy. So, so sin or, or God's wrath or, or anything else that might cause people on a Sunday morning to feel uncomfortable, they should not be spoken of in that context. Because the goal is for people to enjoy their church experience, to say, this was nice, I like that, I want to come back. Okay. That approach to pastoring, that approach to preaching is an inherent denial of the power of God's holy word to convert sinners and to build up and sanctify God's people. And the reason I say that with simple confidence is because of our text. It's crystal clear. The Word of God is the life-changing agent for dead sinners. And for those who are sinners and have been made alive by God. Let's read it one more time. Verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews 4. For the Word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. The subject is... The Word of God. The Word of God is living. The Word of God is active. What does that mean, the Word of God? It means God speaking. Now, in the New Testament, that term, Word of God, regularly means a word, a, a message that, that a human being speaks on God's behalf. For instance, chapter 13 of Hebrews, he will later go on to say, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. So here, in verse 12 of chapter 4, the Word of God most likely is referring to the truth of God revealed in Scripture, which includes that word being preached orally by human beings. Now, so, the way I began the sermon. To the extent the 
exposition, taking God's holy word in Scripture and literally say, that's the thing in this teaching or this sermon, to, to the extent that exposing it, expounding upon it, explaining it goes away, is to the extent God's word in the congregation goes away. Let me, let, let me use Brian Chappelle for a minute. A real, real quick sentence on a definition of what I mean by expository preaching. Chappelle says it is that which requires that it expound Scripture by deriving from a specific text its main points and its subpoints that disclose or reveal the thought of the author that cover the scope of the passage and then are applied to the lives of the listeners. In other words, what that means is if, if the Apostle Paul or if the writer to Hebrews draw a conclusion from the previous paragraph that they wrote, and thus using the word therefore, and then they make three arguments for that conclusion right after that, which are the sub-points. It is following that in the text, in the Scripture, that that is getting at God speaking. That's the Word of God. And thus, in expository preaching or, or teaching, it is saying, here's the conclusion. This is what it means. But let me sh show you in your Bible how you, I mean, how I got there. Can you see that train of thought in the text? And then it is applying it to the hearts and the minds and the actions in the lives of the people. So, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, is one of the great biblical texts on the power, the life-changing work of the Word of God. So, let's go to it. Get the big backdrop first before we look at the two verses. In other words, understand these two verses now in the context that we have been reading week after week after week. So notice that verse 12 begins with the word for. It's hugely important. It means that what he's going to say now in verses 12 and 13 is, is connected to verse 11. Remember, verse 11 says, Let us therefore, here, here it is, here's the command to us Christians. Let us therefore strive. That's what we're supposed to do. Really go after let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
In other words, if we are not striving to enter God's rest, then we are following the same example of disobedience. Same example of what? What he has been saying of Israel under Moses and refusing to trust in what God was telling them. He summarized it in verse 19 of chapter 3. So we see that they were unable to enter God's rest because of unbelief. So, now, back to verse 11 of chapter 4. The disobedience there in verse 11 is talking about the disobedience of unbelief. So the writer says to us, don't be like them, because their, their failure to trust God is what kept them out of God's rest. And it will keep you out of God's rest. If you're like them. Failure to believe. Failure to trust. Okay, trust what? Well, trust God. Well, what does that mean? You mean just your idea that there's a, a God who created? And he exists, and I trust him. What do you trust? I don't know. I just trust him. It's not what he means. And he clarifies it in the text. He's already told us what he's talking about. For instance, in verse 2 we saw last week. For good news came to us, just as it came to them under Moses. But the message, it's literally the Greek word logos, the word they heard it did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So what they failed to trust was content. It was the good news. It was the Word of God, the Word of God which they heard specifically, the, the, the good news, the gospel, the promises even under Moses, that God is merciful and He would forgive their sins. And they didn't trust Him. They didn't trust God's promises. And this is their unbelief, which produced their disobedience. And therefore, when verse 11 now says to us, strive to enter God's rest, it means strive to hear the word, the good news, and strive to believe it and hold on to it and see in it its beauty so that you are more and more moved and attracted to it. Why? He says why. So that you don't become like them and murmur. And forsake God and go back to the Egypt of a sinful lifestyle of unbelief. So, that's so far now, right? The clear flow of the passage. Okay. That's where now verse 12 comes in. Verse 11, strive to enter God's rest by trusting His Word with a heart of faith. Why? Verse 12, for the Word of God 
is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Verses 12 to 13 is given the support. It's given the ground. It's giving the reason for verse 11. Strive to live by faith in God's word in order to enter his rest. Then verse 12 says, the reason you should do this is because the word of God is living and it is active. Now, so one last redundancy. We've been in Hebrews I don't know how many months. Here's a synopsis of what everything has been about in the book of Hebrews so far up to this point. It is this. Christian, enter, don't fail, enter God's rest. Enjoy Him, in other words. And the means to do that day after day is faith. It's trusting Him. And the focus of our trust is God's holy word, His communication, the Scripture. It's the Gospel. It's His promises. And the evidence that we are those who are of the faith that we hold to our initial confession of the faith, that we persevere to the end is that ongoing trust. And therefore, keep your hearts alive. Alive in faith. Strive to do that. Strive to pay attention to the only thing that will continue to keep your hearts alive in faith, the Word of God, which is living and active and alive and discerning and painful and joy-giving. And that's why he has said already a couple times, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard in order to believe it. And to be changed by it. So let's now go to verses 12 and 13 and see why the Bible has so much power. Notice in verse 12, the author says that there are four things about the Word of God. First, he says, the Word of God is living. It's alive. Why? Because it's the Word of God. It, there's only one being who has the power of being or self-existence eternally without beginning. It is, it's His Word. It can never be exterminated. Like Isaiah, the prophet told us in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass, it withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so this living word, the scripture, it's alive in that it imparts life. 
Now, I think at least in two ways. The first thing that the Word of God does is impart life to dead persons. Every single one of us were born into this world dead spiritually to God. All of us. And a dead sinner cannot will himself to spiritual life. Any, any more than, than a dead physical corpse can will himself back to physical life. Cannot do it. Ephesians 2, we're all dead. And then Paul says in Ephesians 2, in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive. Well, how did He do it? He didn't just do it. He used something to do it. It's called, that's the means through which he did it. Like Paul would say, how are they going to be made alive? Or how are they going to believe in him of whom they've not heard? How are they going to hear unless someone tells them or preaches it to them? What? The word of God. The book of James in chapter 1 verse 18 tells us Christians of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? Through the, here it is, living and abiding Word of God. If you want to see people converted to Jesus, get them to read the Bible. Get them to hear the Word preached. We all got stories. It happens in different ways how that Word comes. I was 19. Who knows why? Well, I kind of do now. I wanted to read the Bible for the first time in my life. And my eternity was transformed in reading it. The Word of God is living. It brings dead people to life. But not only that, once those dead people are brought to life then, the Word of God throughout their life is living. It's active for genuine Christians because all of us know what it is to battle our own sin and hard-heartedness. And I once felt close to God. Now I feel distant and He didn't move. It's, it's we who moved and we need to be energized spiritually, and that's the job of the Word of God. Like Psalm 19, right? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And that's why for the believer, more to be desired are they, the words of God, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. The scripture is our only source for knowing extremely important truths about God. See, there is general revelation, and then there's the, the book. 
special revelation. General revelation that God created, Romans 1. You ought to deduce some things from that. That there is a God and that He is good and He ought to be thanked. And, and it shows God's eternal attributes just by observing everything around you. But the written Word of God is where He's revealing Himself, His redemptive history and things you could never know about Him unless you read them and looked at them. And thus, through viewing God in the Word, in the Scripture, this is Paul's whole argument in 2 Corinthians 3. It's all about the written Word in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, it is through viewing God in the way He's revealed Himself in the Scripture that changes us Christians from one degree of glory to another degree because the word of God is living second thing he says is the word of God is active this is the same word that we get our English word energy from it's the Greek word energes energes energy it's active in other words the word of God is always, as it goes forth, doing something. The Word of God, God's Word, accomplishes what the God of the Word sent it forth to do. You know that. I'll read it. Isaiah 55, verses 10 to 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they do not return there, but water the earth, making the earth bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, to the farmer, and bread to the eater. Gives that image, right? Always does it. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's one of the nine or ten Passages of Scripture I rely on on Sunday morning when I pray before I preach. Okay, I can, God, let me be faithful. But other than that, I can't do a thing. Work. And I lie back on that. In other words, if I or any of us as Christians or preachers are careful, careful to preach God's Word, not preach about the Word, but endeavoring to preach the Word itself. In other words, being a pipe or a conduit for it to flow through instead of something to take and to jump off of and do something else with it. When the Word of God goes forth, in your reading 
or in a hearing, in preaching, God promises that it will always accomplish His purpose because it's active. The Word of God is working all the time. And that's where it gets scary. As people might say, I know many people grow up in church and sit and hear the Word and reject it. People come to church every Sunday morning throughout the world and live in stark raving unbelief demonstrated in their unrepentant disobedience. The Word of God went forth. What do you mean? How is it accomplishing it? It's accomplishing. And you don't want to be on the end of that. See, Jesus explained that, that those people they're only fulfilling another word from God that he spoke through Isaiah, the prophet. This is how it goes in Matthew 13, verses 14 to 15, after talking about the word of God being preached, this parable of the sower or the soils. And three of them, it's like all it brought to them was judgment. And he said this, Indeed, in their case, once you reject it, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, and he quotes Isaiah 6, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus wasn't thrown off. He says, all this is doing is its work of hardening if it's not convicting, penetrating, bringing repentance and faith. Now, let me give you a quote from one retired pastor now. He said this. I was preaching through 1 Peter and came to chapter 3 where he instructs wives to be submissive to their husbands, even if the husbands are disobedient to the word. That week... A single woman in her 30s came to see me. She said, you should never preach on that on a Sunday morning. I asked her if I had misrepresented what the text says. She replied, no, you taught what it says. I asked, did I say it in an arrogant or condescending manner? She replied, no, you had the proper tone of voice and manner of speaking. So I asked, then what was the problem? She said, the problem was I brought a friend with me who is an ardent feminist. She was offended 
and will never come to church again. I said, ah. Well, I've been doing this for a few years now, and I know that one of two things will happen. Either your friend will be convicted of her rebellion against God and come to repentance, or she will harden her heart and be all the more guilty on the day of judgment. But either way, God's word will not return to him void without accomplishing his purpose. The woman did not like my answer and left the church. God's word is living. It's always working. It's active. And notice thirdly, it is sharp. It slices. It cuts. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Now, the author, of course, is using figurative language of, of a double-edged sword cutting into the, to the human body or an animal and slicing cutting in order to get the point that God's Word goes very deep into the essence of the human being, immaterially. It takes a very sharp two-edged sword, not just sharp on one side, to cut and to not bounce off the bones, but to cut through bone and to get to marrow. Does it easily sharp. You remember after the word of God was preached on the day of Pentecost by Peter? We read this from Luke in chapter 2 verse 37 of Acts. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? The word cut deep into their consciences. Why? Because God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Unless your conscience is hardened, you cannot read the word of God cannot hear it preached faithfully without getting cut, without your conscience being convicted where it needs to be, without the core of your being being excited in God's mercy. Sin is like a cancer growing inside of us, and when it goes untreated, it could be fatal. That's why the author says, strive. Strive to enter God's rest by laying down on the operating table of the word of God and let him cut you open in order to receive the healing of the soul. The Bible's a dangerous book. When it cuts, 
makes your conscience and your pride scream out, yell, ow! Remember, this is the flow of what the Hebrew writer is saying. When that's happening, here's his command in Hebrews. Do not harden your heart. Don't deny it. Don't turn away from that. And then, verse 12 goes on to say, fourthly, this word, Scripture, is discerning the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. That word discern is the same word throughout that we use for judge. It is judging you. The scripture is the authoritative judge of our thoughts and of our intentions, our, our motives, the motives that are, that are unseen except by the word and him. When the word penetrates, it goes down to the deepest places below our actions. Your action in and of itself might not have been sinful, but the Word shows up in cuts and says, your intention was sinful. And you've got to say, Joe, your heart is wrong. And the Word of God does that. The author's telling us in verse 12 that at the essence of of what it means to strive, to persevere in faith. It means that you take the Word of God, the Scripture, God's commands, His promises, His unveiling of reality and of who He is, and you let it cut and operate on you, and expose your sin and engender faith. Engender rest. It's its work. You can't repent of sin if you're not aware of it. And the Word does that work. The Word cuts through our inner thoughts and feelings and motives. And it convicts and it judges and by God's merciful Holy Spirit grace brings us to repent and to trust in God in that particular area and in this particular area so that we don't fall through the same sort of disobedience of unbelief. Now verse 13. He moves from the Word of God God's Word penetrating the heart and the soul and the thoughts to God Himself who sees everything. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Simple. It is amazing how we deny the simplicity of this. But it's impossible to hide from God. 
No one is hidden from his sight. Our inner thoughts, desires, he says, are naked. They're exposed before him. Now, other than my homeschooling kids, most all of us have had that dream where you woke up and you went to school and you walked into the classroom. And only then did you realize you forgot to put any clothes on. And you're naked. And you're so happy to wake up and know it was a dream. You're utterly exposed to Him. We, from the soul to everything, nothing is hidden. Not the innermost thoughts that no other human being knew were naked before God, the God to whom we must give account. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each person may receive what is due for what he has done during this life in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I'm just, I have to now. Just, gonna, just for 10 seconds, jump forward because we're not there yet. If that thought terrifies you, that's the beauty, the gospel. Because if you keep on reading there in Hebrews 4, he says, we have a sympathetic high priest who invites us to draw near, not run away, and to find mercy for our sin, for our undoneness, for our lack, to find mercy to help in the time of need. That's the context. Mercy for wretched sinners. That's why it's, it's, it's the wonderful road for the Christian to love the operating scalpel of the Word of God. It doesn't stop there. You're naked. You're exposed. Every thought and intention, he knows better than you. Come and draw near through the blood of the high priest. Why? Because we know that day is coming when those who are His, it'll be made clear. The book of life, it will be opened and we must make sure that Jesus is truly our high priest in the most personal sense. And therefore, what's our text saying? Strive. Strive to enter that rest by, by holding firm to Christ and to the gospel. How? Through your obedience of faith to the living, to the active, 
Word of God. So, what does that mean? Treasure this book. I don't mean, don't treat it roughly. I don't mean treasure that way. You might be a rough treater of books like I am. Treasure the contents of the Word of God. Let it be your life. Let it be your judge. Let it be your encourager. Let it be your conduit of mercy and your guide. Let let it be the mirror that reflects your sin. Let it be the window that you look in and you see and view the glory of God. And by that vision is how you're being changed from one degree to another. In other words, read it and study it. Memorize portions of it, if not whole books. Meditate on the Scripture. Let what's in the book live in you. Remember how Jesus said it in John 15? If you abide in me, you live in me, you remain in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He says, let it abide in you. Not just on the end table by the bed or on the bookshelf, but in you, cutting you, changing you, separating you from worldliness unto a heart of faith. And all of that means, in other words, trust it for what it is. God's Word, the Creator of all things, the Savior who sent His Son, His very communication to you. That means read it. Don't read it like a Ouija board. Read it in its context. You can read. That's all you need. Just think as you read. Consider it. Consider what you're reading very carefully. But more than that then, pray. Pray that you see with your heart, not just with your intellect, what it says. That's the instruction implicitly, right, in that great longest chapter in the Bible, all about the Word of God. Open my eyes, Lord, so that, this is what I'm I may see wonderful things in your Word, in your law. He's not saying, God, I don't read Hebrew. He reads Hebrew. He knows what it says. He's not asking, tell me what it means. He's saying, let me have the right response to what it clearly says. Because it is wonderful. It is beautiful. When God says repent from this sin, that is a beautiful word. When He says flee to My Son, When Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, I'll give you rest. I'll put a yoke on you. Oh, yeah. 
I will tell you which way to turn, absolutely. But mine is easy. It's light. Open my eyes so that I have the appropriate response. Another word for that is faith. Trust. That's the goal in reading. It's not merely to know or to have another theological argument to beat someone down with. It is so that our hearts get changed. And so I close. Strive. Strive. And strive to enter God's rest by exposing your life and your heart to what your mind sees in the living Word of God. Because the Word of God is living and active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirits, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature who's hidden from God's sight. But all are exposed and laid bare and naked to the eyes of whom we have to do. But we have a merciful and sympathetic high priest. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its work. Thank you for how you're using that in each individual this morning. You have your ways that I know not of. We don't know of the other, but you are working by your word through your spirit today, tomorrow, and then the days to come. And we thank you for this, that Jesus would be glorified now. And in those days, through our lives, amen.